0: Welcome to my Life Beyond Postnatal Depression podcast. This is my playground and I'm your host, Susan Scollin. I believe that life can be simple and that our dreams can come true. Being a parent or wanting to become a parent can be fun, but to do that, we need to let go of what we thought parenting and life was and create our own adventure. Each Monday, I interview everyday people and wellness experts about our parenting journeys, what we've learned, who we've become, and ways we can be even more amazing people for ourselves and future generations. And join me on Thursdays for the Beginner Health Sessions for simple ways you can up-level your own health and wellness. Be inspired. Today, I'm chatting with Madeline Black. She has an unusual personal story which she uses to inspire and motivate others. Before I dive into Madeline's story, I want to advise you that this episode may trigger people who have experienced sexual violence or sexual abuse. Madeline's story is incredibly powerful and uplifting, but please choose your own mental health first. Madeline is an incredibly brave woman who chose to forgive the two men who gang raped her at 13 years old, and she shares her story for for many reasons. She wants to end the shame, stigma and silence around sexual violence, enabling others to find their voice, whatever their story is. She wants people to know that it's not what happens to us that's important, but what we do with it. She shows how changing her mindset tapped into her resilience and transformed her life, making people question their own thinking and encouraging them to see there are always choices to make. And if we choose to, we can get past anything that happens to us in life, both professionally and in our personal life. She wants to encourage others to live their life courageously too, but ultimately she wants to inspire, hope and show people that we are so much stronger than we think we are. Madeline shared her story publicly on the Forgiveness Project's website in September 2014. Many women and men got in contact and explained how reading her story gave them hope, strength, and a different perspective of what is possible in their lives. In March 2018, she won the Amazing Strength Award at the number one magazine Amazing Women Awards and in October of the same year was asked to be a patron for Save Women, a Scottish organisation which offers safe accommodation and support to young women who are survivors of sexual abuse and rape and who are homeless. She is one of 50 Thrivers taking part in research by the Global Resilience Project to develop a resilience blueprint for others. She is a two-times TEDx speaker, a storyteller for the Forgiveness Project, and has recently become involved with their program Restore, sharing her stories in prison prisons. In June 2020, she was asked to be the patron for Justice Is Now, an organisation that campaigns to end the use of rape myth and victim blaming in the criminal justice system. In November 2020, she started her own podcast show called Unbroken, Healing Through Storytelling. And in December 2020, she was asked to be the ambassador for Freedom From Abuse. Madeline is a psychotherapist and her memoir, Unbroken, was published on April 4, 2017. I reached out to Madeline, only briefly knowing her rape story, to ask her if she would be open to sharing her decision to have or not have children. This podcast episode dives into that discussion and the decision she made, which led her to having three beautiful baby girls. Her life, as she describes, is more abundant for choosing what was true for her and the work she's doing is helping so many others heal. We also dive into generational trauma that can come from being a victim, which I believe, if it's not healed, can flow on to our children and grandchildren. This is a super powerful episode and Madeline and I would love to hear what resonated with you. So after you've listened, jump over to Instagram, my business Facebook business page or website and let us know what you loved about it. Be inspired. Welcome, Madeline. It's an honor to have this time with you and and podcast with you together today. So thank you for joining me. And I know it's well, it's summertime in Scotland, but it's nice and early for you in the morning, and usually I'm the one doing the morning thing with the people in the US, so it's great to be doing this in the afternoon with you.
1: Uh, thank you, Susan, for inviting me on. It's lovely to be here with you.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. I, first, I'd like to ask you, what's one thing that's bringing you the most joy at the moment?
1: Well, I would say, actually, through lockdown, what I've learned is that actually, It's really important to be human and not perfect. And I've just really let go of so many things I used to really like fuss and worry about. So just really enjoying all the little things. The little things were always the big things. But, you know, I think it took lockdown for us to really pay attention to that again.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with you. There's been a lot of gifts through lockdown and I know I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I know that's not the case for everybody, but it's, it's beautiful to hear you talk about that and sort of say that, you know, it's those little things that are most important and perhaps, you know, having time with loved ones that we didn't have before because we were rushing about and doing things and having those deeper conversations have been a real blessing through this time. And I know there's been other blessings around, you know, environmental changes and things like that, but just that slowing down of life has really been a gift for us during this time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, can you share with us a little bit about what you're doing in the world and then we'll get into some of the deeper conversation that's going to come out through this this interview?
1: Yeah, I I am an author, a speaker, and I was travelling the world before lockdown came in, which I now do online. I was a psychotherapist, but once I shared my story um, I was asked to speak more and more. So I couldn't do two things. So actually, just before lockdown, maybe not the best timing, I stopped working as a therapist. And I'm also a recent podcaster, which I would say is my gift of lockdown because I just started it in November 2020. So that's kind of really what I do at the moment. And I guess you could say I'm a sexual violence activist. So, I speak out about sexual violence.
0: Yeah. So, can you take us on your story then and your journey to get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, my story really starts in the late 1970s when I was just 13 years old and I was very violently raped by two men, um, which obviously had a massive impact on my life. But, and it took me many, many, many years to find my voice and to heal. And it was seven years ago that I shared my story with an organisation called The Forgiveness Project in London. And it kind of went viral. And I really then learned the power that comes when we share our stories. And our founder of the organisation, Marina, Kanta Kazuno, you know, told me I could be anonymous. And I just thought, I'm tired of being ashamed, you know, for a crime that was committed against my body. That. Took me years to work out, it had nothing to do with me. All the guilt and shame I felt for years was all due to the trauma and what these men did to me. So I, I shared my photo and my name and it's just, just opened so many doors for me, really in ways I couldn't have never, never have imagined. You know, TV, radio, newspaper, magazine articles, wrote my book, speak, spoken all around the world the very first time. I was asked to speak internationally was for UNICEF in the Maldives and I thought you know uh, I'm just going to trust life that this is where I'm meant to be this is kind of my my purpose now and I feel if I can do this if I can speak out and share my story then it's almost my duty to speak for those that really can't find their voice just yet so I'm very passionate about sharing my story not for me really but what it can do for other people.
0: Yeah, it definitely brings in a healing aspect to it. Like you get your the level of healing for yourself, I think, but also it's healing for those, like you said before, who can't speak up for themselves and who haven't been able to find their voice and who are struggling through this. So what I'm hearing is that you're like a beacon of light for those people who, you know, are struggling to turn on their light some days.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I was influenced by other beacons (laughs) and maybe we're just fire lighters. You know, I I saw someone else fire, uh, heard someone else speak and it gave me the courage because courage really is contagious. And then I'm just really, you know, paying that forward. I'm just helping other people find their voice on the shoulders of the people that helped me to find my voice.
0: Yeah. So can you take us back to like seven years ago when when you started to share your story What drove you to do that? Because that hadn't happened prior to that. So what was the change there for you?
1: Yeah, I I had kind of shared it, but in a very, very private way. You know, I took part in a newspaper magazine, a newspaper article just a few years before that. But I was always one of these women that was silhouetted. You know, they always had this black silhouette and they were always facing a window and their head was always to the side for some reason. And it was all, I used to work with Rape Crisis and they asked me if I'd take part and it was. This is not an excuse to rape me. They were doing this great big campaign, and they said, "Can we put your name and your photo?" I said, "No, no." It was still all this shame, and I don't know really what changed. I just. I think I just got so tired of being ashamed, and I realized after many years that a hundred percent of all rapes are caused by rapists. You know, it was nothing to do with me lying to my parents that night. Um, going for a drink with a friend, staying in a flat where nobody was there. We lied about where we were staying. It came down to the fact that these two men chose to rape me, but that literally took me 30, 35 years to work that out. And until that moment, I believed all the rape-blaming messages that were around and all the rape myths that I must have brought on myself, that I was responsible in some way. But it was never, never anything to do with me. And Marina, who is the founder, as I mentioned before, of the Forgiveness Project, she doesn't call us storytellers, she calls us story healers. Mm. And ever since that moment, I've never, ever regretted it. I have seen the power that comes when I share my story so many times that 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 just motivates me and drives me. And, yeah, I just really believe in the power of sharing stories.
0: Yeah. And the point that you raised there is that there's nothing that you did on that night to cause this. It wasn't because you were dressed in a particular way, or like you said, because I lied to my parents and we went and hid where you were, you know, hang out, where you were hung, hang, hanging out as a 13 year old um, sort of young girl. It was a decision that somebody else made. Um, and then you didn't have control over that decision. and But what you had control of was how you acted afterwards, how you showed up for yourself afterwards. And that takes a lot of healing um, to work through, doesn't
1: it? Oh, this is a tonne load of therapy. And for years, of course, like most people, I shut down. I numbed out. I was in denial. I minimised it. I said it wasn't that bad. That didn't really happen. I must have made that up. But, you know, what we don't speak about has got to come out of us. And so because I didn't speak about it, I had developed anorexia. I had depression. I was suicidal. I had six months in a children's psychiatric ward. Um, I was taking drugs, alcohol, so many fears, phobias, anxieties. It had a massive impact on me, even though I didn't speak about it. It took me three years to tell my parents. So, yeah, what we don't speak about definitely has to come out of our systems in some way but it's taken a lot a lot of healing but it is really really possible to heal and if anything now I would say I have post-traumatic growth you can definitely grow through what you go through and I think that's where I'm at now because I don't expect everyone to speak about it but every time I stand on a stage or share my story in a podcast or a virtual event it just dilutes any any shame that was left at all. In fact, there's, there's no shame now because we know that, you know, babies are raped, women in burqas, men in jeans. It, it's nothing to do with the victim. It's the only crime that I can think of that the victim is blamed so much. So, uh, yeah, it, it's been a journey.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's so true, that point that, you know, a murder victim isn't blamed for being somewhere or doing something at that time, but a rape victim actively is and society still has that message in there to say that, well, perhaps you shouldn't have been doing what you were doing and you shouldn't have been dressed the way you were or you shouldn't have been as drunk as you were or whatever the thing was, but there's still that blame game going on and that's at all levels. So it's not just in society, unfortunately, it's still within our police system to a certain degree. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I imagine in multiple other systems as well, like the court system and that sort of thing as well. Um, so that's why women don't speak up and men and men who get raped as well. Like it's not just women, it's predominantly women that get raped, but men also get raped as well. Um, so, you know, finding finding a safe space to share that information would be very challenging too.
1: I'm a patron for a British organisation called Justices Now, and we train judges and solicitors, lawyers, against rape-blaming myths and cultures. So you think, gosh, if we have to train the judges and the lawyers, what chances does a jury have? You know, they come in with all these preconceived ideas about, well, you know, if she was wearing a lacy thong or she went to the, his hotel room or, or he had a drink with him. Whatever people think, what chance does, does anyone have in a witness in the trial if the judges and the lawyers come in with that attitude?
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And you mentioned post-traumatic growth. I think um, a lot of people can see that, you know, I'm stuck with this issue, whether it be rape or whether for me, you know, postnatal depression, I'm stuck with this and I have to live with this for the rest of my life. And I think we live with the story that it happened, like it was an event that happened, but it doesn't have to define us. And that idea of post-traumatic growth is a huge one that I, I think people shy away from. And they think that there's going to be no growth and there's nothing good going to come from sharing this kind of information. But I, I think you and I, and a, a lot of other people are proving us all wrong or proving that statement wrong to go, there's actually a lot of growth that can come through this. And there's a lot of you know, releasing the shame that you've talked about, the fear, the guilt, all of those sorts of stories and the things that manifest within us if we don't do something with it, whatever that framework is for for each individual. But uh, can you talk a little bit more about that post-traumatic growth and, and what that's actually meant for you?
1: Yeah, well, it just showed that I am and everybody else are so much stronger than we think we are, you know. To actually go through what we go through shows that we're really strong, that it didn't destroy us, that we've got to this moment. And, you know, I'm I'm not the things that they did to me. I'm so much more than the events in my life. I'm, I'm not even my body, you know. What is our body? Um, I'm not my name, you know. All of it is just an event. It was one day in my life, which had a massive impact on my life. But I got to see that, that's not who I am. The real essence of what all of us are born with can never be touched by any event in our life. But the journey has just been about uncovering it, you know, the layer upon layer of trauma and working through it. In the end, all the avoiding and distracting and denying didn't work. I had to really dive into I guess, the darkest moments of my life to really come face to face and say, okay, this is it. (laughs) I'm going to clean up this mess once and for all. And so that's what I did. The last time I had therapy was for three years. It was when my eldest daughter was 13. So she became the same age that I was. And it triggered all of my memories. And at first, I was the worst kind of client. I told my therapist, I want you to take these pictures away. I don't want to see them anymore, which obviously, I'm also a psychotherapist. I know that's not possible. (laughs) But eventually I had to say okay you know this is what happened because the denial was actually worse than the memories themselves I could have really driven myself crazy with all that I was doing and I saw a beautiful post by Brenny Brown the other day about denial and it said don't even know I am lying and I thought that was just perfect because that's what I did I just lied to myself that it wasn't that bad you know I just kind of made it up But actually, once I really owned it and stepped into the moments, it just diluted all the energy that it had over me. And it just, it just kind of lined me up with my head and my heart because it was so disjointed before and much more grounded. So when I'm grounded and I feel like my feet are on this planet, I'm, I'm whole again. I'm integrated, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah it totally makes sense and you're back in your power like you're more empowered from you have the power from this space rather than giving it to an event that happened years ago that you couldn't control and so now you can actually go no no no. this is why I was meant to be doing you know why I was meant to go through everything that I went through because if you never went through that then you would never be doing the work that you're doing right now.
1: Yeah I mean I, I don't I think everything happens for a reason, but I think you can find reason from stuff that happens. Yeah. So I think this is now my reason. And also when you say I'm back in my power, for many years I felt I was out of my body. So now I'm back in my body because that night I literally left my body and I was watching the scene from on top of a wardrobe. It was a real out of body experience because I did come very close to being killed. Um, And I think being back in my body, being back in my power, all of it just grounds me and here I am (laughs)
0: yeah yeah even more so what do you think this journey was about for you what have you sort of uncovered any of that sort of knowledge at this point
1: you know I don't really know now but what I do know now is that I just trust life and I just I don't really make any plans I don't have any regrets because I used to think if only I hadn't but there's no point doing that because that's when you're really caught in denial. So I don't have any regrets. I, I learn from my my experiences as I go through life, uh, as I grow through life, hopefully. And yeah, no regrets and just, just be open to whatever comes in. I've just really learned to trust that life actually knows what it's doing and I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think we can all do that a little bit, even more every single day to start to, to trust ourselves and trust that life is happening for us, not to us. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you was around this whole, if you've had that experience as a young woman, did you ever think about having children? Was that off the table for you? And And you did go on to have children. So I'd love to know a little bit more about that journey for you.
1: It had a massive impact on my ideas of motherhood because when I was thinking about conceiving, I was not in a very healed place. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I met my partner, my husband of mm, nearly 38 years ago when I was just 17. And after about five years, he asked me to marry him. Obviously, I said yes. But I told him I was never going to become a mum. I just thought that giving birth was going to be like being raped again, and it, it absolutely terrified me. I had this image of my feet and stirrups and men at my cervix, and I was so um, fearful then of being out of control and being around men. Those were my two major fears, as well as my security and all the rest of it, but those were my major fears. And I thought, how can I do this safely, calmly, the easiest way is just not to do it. And so he was absolutely fine. And he said, OK, it'll just be me and you. We got married. But a couple of years later, we were on a beach in Thailand. I can remember the exact moment. We used to go away every winter somewhere, lovely, warm and exotic, uh, to get away from the English skies. And he just wondered out loud, you know, how about starting a family? And I was really ready to say, listen, you know why I can't do that. But I just thought to myself, if I don't do it, they've won. I am giving all my power and control over to these two men, and they don't even have any idea. So I call it my best revenge that I came up with this plan that I was going to not just become a mum, but I was going to live my life as best as I possibly could, just refusing to be identified by what had happened. So I came back to the UK after my holiday, and I went into therapy. It took me a lot of therapist to find the one I was happy with and I found an amazing woman called Vera who also did psychotherapy with hypnosis so she really helped me to calm my nervous system around giving birth and to being controlled and giving birth it was kind of like hypnobirthing I guess and two years later I had my first daughter Anna followed by Mimi about three years later and then Layla was my third one five years later so yeah I have my three gorgeous girls
0: yeah, that's a beautiful journey. Yeah. To, yeah, to go on and then and then to have three girls that now you yes. get to you know raise and protect and and yeah, educate. There was
1: that. There was that. I thought, why did I get girls? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know that that did come into it because it 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 brought up a lot of fears that the same thing is going to happen again. And I thought, why life? Did you give me girls? Why not boys? Ugh. But, you know, it's actually, it's led to me being very open and honest with them and we have open conversations and I tell them, or I used to tell them, they're all older now, if you're out and you're at all worried, it doesn't matter what you've been doing, drugs, drinking, I don't care, just call your parents, call mum and dad, we will always come and get you. No judgement, just want you to be okay. Yeah. And they've done that and their friends have also done it for us as well. That's cool. (laughs) Because they're too scared to phone their own parents, so Yeah. (laughs)
0: So you're the cool parents that will look after well,
1: them. Well, yes, but then, you know, it's also, I guess, sad as well. My middle daughter had a friend who was at uni and her flatmate had been raped and they didn't want to call her mum or call the police. So they contacted me and they said, what should we do? How do we look after her? Mm. So, yeah, in some ways it's, it's good that they could come to me, but it's really sad that she didn't want to tell her mum as well. Not yet, or at that moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's a journey for her to go on. Yeah. Yeah. So was that a? If you come into the birth like of your first daughter, was that a struggle for you, or had you done enough therapy at that point um, to then to be able to move through that? I had a, and the reason I ask, I had a um, a, a mum who said that breastfeeding felt she had had a um, a sexual encounter that um, didn't go particularly well, um, and she felt that breastfeeding was like being. Sexually abused all over again, so there are probably multiple triggers within that. But did you feel that you were healed? uh, You know, prior to.
1: No, I I was very clear. um, I could only go to somewhere that that knew my story and could look after me because, in pregnancy, I had these wild and awful dreams of being out of control or all or my children dying in childbirth, or my husband, my whole family getting wiped out. They're really awful nightmares when I was pregnant. And so I went to a beautiful unit in London, which I had to pay for. It was private. Sadly, I think the pandemic has closed it. And it was a very, very small birthing unit that didn't use high-tech. It was very low-tech. Stephen and I had a double bed. He stayed for five nights with me. There was a water pool in my room. They used aromatherapy, homeopathy. It was a very, very calm environment, and they knew all about my, my trauma. And I said, no men present. I didn't even have any male men delivering room food to my room. There was nothing. The consultant was a man, but, you know... He always saw me with uh, somebody in the room. He never saw me alone. They all knew that I was quite paranoid. But for me, actually, because it had been such a journey to give birth, it was so empowering. It was just amazing. It was like my body just knew exactly what to do, and it just took over, and it was such a healing thing to hold my daughter in my arms for that first time. I thought I would never, ever do that. Oh, it makes me quite emotional thinking about it now. But it was. It was just something that I thought I would never, ever do, and yeah, I really set it up you know, I had very strict guidelines and boundaries. When I look back now, I think, oh my gosh, what must they have thought? But they were absolutely fine. And we did a lot of work beforehand. They did, um, uh, we used to do like yoga classes and afterwards they did uh, baby massage classes and also for the mum's yoga classes. But they also gave me a lot of a therapy whilst I was pregnant at the hospital because they knew my, my story. Um, so they appointed someone for me and I would go every week to speak about my fears. What I, I was so scared of being cut because they had used a knife on me in that area as well. I had been stabbed during the rape in my vagina. So that was one of my fears of having an episiotomy that, that just yeah. terrified me. Thankfully, with three girls, I've never torn or had an episiotomy because they really managed the birth so well because I was in water a lot of the time and because I was standing and I just religiously oiled myself every day for the fear to stop any fears of tearing and it, and it worked and I had big babies so you know my first one was nearly nine pounds so wow. and no tearing so that was good but then after that I moved to Scotland and we didn't have any private units like that so I had two home births which were fantastic because I had two midwives all to myself, you know, they didn't have to run off down a ward and look after any other woman, and the last one, she was like two hours, I think the midwife were in my house, and she popped out, and I was downstairs making them a cup of tea, so it was just, it just got easier as it went on, it was just really helped me to stand in my, my feminine power, it was almost like sticking two fingers up at them like, fuck it I've done it now (laughs) this is I've you know this is like almost my 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 payback or my my best revenge as I call it
0: yeah but also a really beautiful gift for your girls as well so having that time like you nurturing yourself you putting boundaries around how this birth is going to work you did lots of therapy to to help manage your mind and help manage all the challenges that you could foresee at that point and made sure that you had the right people in the room to bring the right outcome so that then next time you have already done it once. Like it's almost like you've got the gold star the first time and then you're like, oh, well, I can kick, kick ass with number two and number three. That's not a problem. Yeah.
1: And, and it, it was very funny because when I moved to Scotland, you know, not many people had home births. Still not many people really do up here. And yeah. I had to have the head of midwifery come to my home to check it out. And I thought, I have hot water. I have towels. What, what do you need? I think they just check that you're not crazy. But, you know, women give birth in the fields in other countries and then pop back to work or there was a recent demonstration where I was just living at the time they were building a massive motorway and there was people camping in tree houses and somebody had given birth up there so I think yeah I think when I was in the moment my body just really took over and it knew exactly what to do.
0: Yeah and so you came back into that trust space. Yeah. Yeah and do you think that Like women just don't trust themselves enough, just in general, in generally in life, or is that and is that something that we need to cultivate into our own lives?
1: Well, I think in terms of pregnancy, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but the minute you're pregnant, women just tell you all the horrific birth stories. Oh man, he came out with his feet and his elbows first, and I was split from shoulder to toes and you know all of the horrific stories come out I "I don't want to hear so I did not hear anything and if ever I meet anyone pregnant you know I just tell them how great it was and how much they're going to love it and it's just beautiful and I don't know why people do that especially women they just want to give you the worst case scenario possible so uh yeah, so that doesn't help.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't. And we have the same sort of problems, oh, well, challenges over here where women share stories that they really don't need to share and potentially yeah. they need to go and see a therapist and yes. share it with the therapist <laughs> to work through their own, own challenges. Something that's been coming up for me lately that I've been noticing and I was talking to a friend about it this morning was this idea that if we don't heal something in our lives, that can then carry over into the next generation. So... I'll talk about it from a sporting perspective a little bit different but I I've played netball um at a, at a very high level for a long time and so shooting for me has always been something that I've been a natural at and I've built you know over the years and I've probably put up a million shots probably not that many but you know what I mean? and now Teddy's interested in playing basketball and he'll put up shots at netball and He's, he's not getting them all, but he is fairly accurate. And I was talking to my husband about it. You know, he gets good height on the ball. He has good technique, generally speaking. And I'm wondering whether that kind of, you know, because of all the work that I've done in that space from a sporting perspective, then comes across into. His ability and that he's like an upgraded supercomputer of, of me effectively. And that's my seven year old. And then a friend I was talking to today, she was talking about that there had been some sexual trauma potentially in her life, but then realized that there'd been some in her mum's life that her mum hadn't been able to heal. And then there was some in her grandmother's life that she had never potentially healed. And so I wonder if you've noticed that potentially through the work that you do, if Women or if we as humans, because men can have it too, don't heal the traumas that come into our own life, there is a possibility that our children are gonna have to pick up that bucket and heal that as well.
1: Absolutely. It's called transgenerational trauma. So it definitely passes through the bloodline or or just observing, you know, living with someone. My father was a Holocaust survivor, so he had all of his family wiped out. His, littlest brother was just six years old who was gassed at Auschwitz but actually with my dad if anything he showed me how to live life so in some ways it was the opposite he showed me which is why I knew I could get past this because I thought well if he can get past having his whole family wiped out surely I can get past one night and and he loved life you know he did have his issues he could never sit in a room with the door closed. He was always on the move. He got up very early, so he could never keep still. He'd never really totally relaxed. But if you met him, he was funny, and he loved children, and he loved to make people laugh. He was an entertainer, and you think, you've come from the, one, the, the most horrific thing I can think against humanity, and you love life, so it was amazing. But it's interesting you talk about somebody's mum having abuse it was only until after my dad died that my mum told me that as an eight-year-old she had been raped by her neighbour repeatedly so my parents were married 38 years and they had five kids together and she never was able to tell her voice she never went for therapy at all because she believed for a long time it was her fault so every time my granny would send her to play with her friend she you know resist and she says oh go on you go play with your friend and this man would abuse my mum she did tell my her brother, who told my grandparents, and he was charged and he was sent to prison. It was also discovered he was raping his daughters as well, he was abusing his daughters. But my mum's family just packed up and they moved away and they never spoke about it. And so with me speaking publicly, or it was actually when I was going for therapy the, the last time, she shared that with me, and speaking publicly she said, Oh, I could never do what you do, and but she allowed me to write her story into my book, and she allows me to speak about her. And one of the very first times I spoke locally, I said, "You know, sometimes I speak about your story, Mum. Oh, what are you going to say? What are you going to say?" I said, "It's okay. I don't need to mention it today because she hadn't really told many people." And at the end, one of my friends said, "You know, your mum came up to me and said it happened to her as well." It was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> so all these years later you can you can still heal and you can still find your voice and I, I think it starts by finding your voice. But, yeah, there's so much trauma in families that's just hidden and yes. not spoken about and not dealt with and we really do need to feel to heal. You have to give it oxygen. It has to come out of us.
0: Mm. And you mentioned Brene Bre- Brown before. Like she talks, you know, I think it's shame if you speak about it in it, – it can't hide in the darkness anymore. You put light on top of it and it can't hide. And so that's the same with our wounds. If we start to talk about them in whatever forum that we want to, because there's multiple forums that we can do it in, but we give it, we put it out in the light and everything, the shame, the fear, the challenges that we have, the emotions that we bring around that area start to dissolve
1: yeah, I did a, a second TEDx during lockdown, which was interesting. It was a virtual one. My first one was with an audience of 2,000 people. This one was just in my little office by myself. It's not been released yet, so I'm hoping it's going to come out soon, but it's called Why I'm Shaming Shame. So it's all about how shame holds us back. And I do mention the fabulous Brené Brown in my talk as well about it can't exist when we shine a light on it and it grows in the darkness so so by stepping into my shame by doing what I do it just dilutes it and eradicates it i have no shame for what happened to me at all anymore yeah it was never my shame to start with never
0: yeah but you obviously carried a lot of wounds after that by hard, holding on to that shame. And and I think there's a lot of women out there that still hold on to shame around, you know, um, I didn't give birth naturally like I had a caesarean, therefore I'm not a real mother. Like those stigmas and stories that we tell ourselves, they're actually not supporting us to be the full version of ourselves and the beautiful, beautiful version of ourselves that we can be.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's amazing where the shame comes from regarding children, childbirth. When I first moved to Scotland, it's a little bit behind England in some ways. So Anna would have been about six months old and I was feeding the hospital I went to. They just detached your babies literally pretty much before they even cut the the cord. So she was feeding and they hadn't even cut the cord yet. But they were very advanced, I have to say, ahead of their times, so or maybe they were very how it used to be, <laughs> you know, hundreds of years behind. They hadn't got too medicalized. Um, and I went to my GP, who was a woman who had five kids. She said, oh, well, you're not still feeding, are you? You need to stop that. Just give her a bottle. I'm like, uh, no. Wow. <laughs> and this was my GP. This was a female doctor. And it was. It, I just stopped whenever they decided to stop when they just got bored and had enough. Yeah. Some were a year, some were 10 months, some were six months. It, it didn't matter, you know. I yeah. just let them decide. And I, I was shocked when I first moved her. That was her attitude from a female doctor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, there's a lot of stories around that, whether that approach or just get them on the bottle You don't need to be breastfeeding you don't need to be you know doing all the things that you're doing but it's it's an individual story like it's finding your voice in a in amongst all this sea of voices and the sea of women and men you know I had actually had a woman a prominent woman in my life tell me that I was that I was going to kill my baby um, just by turning up to the front door so that my boobs went on display and had a cloth over him Um, and he's seven year old and doing just fine and then I had a doctor a male doctor tell me the same thing because I had um, mastitis and I was taking antibiotics to clear up the mastitis and so you know those sorts of things don't actually support somebody to be you know the best version of themselves in amongst all the drama and the challenges that are going on so finding your inner voice whether it be through a trauma that you've had or whether it's you know just a new mum who is just starting out just follow what what works for you let everybody else's stories go definitely yeah Yeah. so tell me um thinking about you know your journey who would you say that you have become because you've been on this journey
1: who have I become I think I've just become who I always was yeah just I've just discovered me you know (laughs) that this was me that was underneath all of the layers and layers and layers of trauma and shame and guilt and fear and paranoia and phobias and all the rest of it, this is the essence of who I am. It feels like I'm now the me I was that I was born into yeah. this world. Oh,
0: beautiful. And what would you say to that 13-year-old girl now that you know what you know?
1: Well, I do, I do not like to have any regrets, but I would just go back and tell her it was never her fault. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think, you know, any woman that's listening to this that has been through that, trauma as well could say the same thing to
1: themselves absolutely we're so hard on ourselves and we really believe you know we're so good at being negative to ourselves it comes so much easier but to actually say it was never your fault it's is very powerful to hear those words but yeah that's that's the only thing I would say to her she was just yeah. a naive 13 year old who got drunk on a night out and trusted two men to get her home yeah. that was it
0: yeah so she was a good soul. Still, is well, a good yes.
1: soul. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Still growing. But how old are your babies now? Oh, my youngest is nineteen. Uh, Layla is at uni. I have Mimi. who's twenty-five. She's. An- She finished her masters in architecture and works as an architect from her bedroom at the moment because of lockdown. And Anna is twenty-eight, and she snuck away on a holiday because there was a green light for Mallorca. So she's away. So we've muted her for the week. We don't want to see any photos. (laughs) And she gets married next year. Oh wow! How beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah and they sound really balanced and really you know connect well connected to you and your husband but really balanced in terms of life and
1: well, well yeah but well, you have to be careful because I want them to be confident you know fiery independent women and they are confident independent fiery women so sometimes they think oh what have I done <laughs> <And at laughs> but I same time, yeah they're enjoying life as well yeah, yeah. absolutely
0: yeah that's awesome and so thinking about women who are going through this and still haven't found their voice, what are some of the advice that you would give to them?
1: You know, it's, it's never, ever too late to find your voice. I've been so fortunate since I've started speaking out. Um, been interviewed by amazing people, and we have a British broadcasting legend in the UK called Sir Trevor MacDonald. I was interviewed for BBC Radio 4, and my friend's mum was listening to the show And she saw her that night, and to cut a long story short, she told her that she had also been raped as a teenager. My friend's mum was 81, and she, that day, ended 64 years of her silence. And so I think if she can do that, we can all do that. And she said she's just changed. Her energy has shifted. And she shares other things now that she didn't know about as well. So it's never too late. You know, find someone that you trust. I guess be careful who you share your story with. It has to be someone you trust. It doesn't have to be a therapist. It can be anyone. And if you can't find someone, tell yourself your story. You know, stop denying it. Write it down. Read it back to yourself. But yeah, it will just shift something internally so much. It will change the energy inside of you and give you more space for the real you to show up because it occupies too much space.
0: Mm, it's the noise in our own head, isn't it? It's the knocking that just doesn't stop and the criticism and you know the inner critic to a certain degree. But it's, you know, it's it's for example, some people who um, and I use alcohol as an example, like when's my next drink coming? It's all of those stories. When am I, when am I diving in? When am I getting out of this sort of space? And until you sit with that space and sit with that challenge and, and open, shine the shine the light on it then you'll constantly be escape, trying to escape it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Eventually it's going to catch up. <laughs> well, it's, it's already doing whatever it's doing to you anyway. It's, it's leaking out of you. So, yeah, you've yeah. got to feel it to heal it.
0: Yeah, yeah, such an important thing to remember. Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add um, before we wrap up the podcast?
1: No, I think that, that I always like to just say, you know, it's, it's never too late to find your voice and actually... If you've got to this point in your life, you are already so much stronger than you think you are.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really important point as well. Like, we are so much stronger. Like, we kind of go, I can't put up with this anymore. But we're still here. So let's,
1: let's and, start And talking. look at all that you have put up and look exactly. We're so good at looking at how much more we have to do. But actually, it's really good now and again just to look back and see, look how far you've come. You know, look where it all started and look where you're at today. Yeah. You know. Are you grateful for your journey? Absolutely. And if anything, it is gratitude that's got me where Mm. I'm at. And it's hard for people to understand, but I wouldn't undo what happened to me because it really taught me, when your life is very nearly Mm. taken away, that if we look at the existence of the world billions and billions of years I'm here for about 10 nanoseconds, really. Mm. You know, I'm just a blip in humanity. I'm going to enjoy my, if I get to 10 nanoseconds, it might just be seven or eight. I, I want to enjoy them. I want to live my life and make the best of it. So if anything, um, it, it's, it's hard for people to hear, but I'm grateful that they showed me how easily my life could have been taken away because I'm going to live my best one.
0: Mm. And you're definitely doing that. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I've just got three questions for you before we fully wrap up. I just want to know what's one thing that you do for self-love? Self-love's been a big part of my life. Um, and particularly on my journey since postnatal depression. So I'd love to know what is one thing that you you do for self-love. I,
1: I think I try not to take life too seriously anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think a day without laughter is a day wasted. You got to laugh. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Everything comes together as it should, right? I, you know, like I'm a believer in that sort of thing. Yeah. So, and what's one thing that you do for fun?
1: What do I do for fun? Well, I... There's fun in everything, really, you know, everything's fun, cooking and walking my dog. At the moment, we're isolating, so we were were gardening yesterday, which my husband never does, so he's really bored. And he even offered to wash the kitchen floor, so I'm going to milk this as much (laughs) as I can these 10 days. I might even have a clean house at the end of it. But yeah, you can just find fun in everything. It's not a particular thing, but I I love sport, I love walking, I love hiking, you know, I do loads of stuff, loads of stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think like we just, we've lost sight of being playful in life. So just finding the fun, like you said, in just cooking or going for a walk or just playing with the dog or making my husband do tasks around the house that he wouldn't normally do. (laughs) He offered, he offered. I
1: didn't
0: make him. No, but that's all right. But I can, you know, like you said, you can milk a few things. So what else is on your list? (laughs) That's very sweet. And so you've given us lots of information today and in recognition of you and of service of you if myself and my listeners were to implement one thing into our own lives what would that be
1: it's just just trust trust your own life trust that you are you know don't believe the negativity just uh, trust that you are far more than whatever happened to you
0: yeah and we all are aren't we cool well where can people find you and be part of your world and be part of the things that you are doing in the world
1: sure the best thing is to go onto my website that has all the links to my own book my own podcast show and everything that I'm doing which is madeleineblack.co.uk and it's got all the link to my social medias
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your, this conversation today. Thank you for lighting up the world like you're doing and doing all the talking and helping everybody heal because we've all got a trauma or two to, to heal from. We are human. and But thank you for doing the work that you're doing in the
1: world. Oh, thank you so much. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Susan. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Madeline. Thank you for joining me today. And I have a couple of small favours to ask. If you love this episode, please share it with someone you love and you know the episode will resonate with. Also, to help spread the word about my podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave me a review. I would love hearing your thoughts about my podcast and what's resonating with you. Plus, it helps us share my podcast with the rest of the world, which is amazing. Finally, thank you so much for being here. I'm super grateful for you and I'm truly honoured you've spent your time with me. Let's keep rising, let's keep growing because it's totally possible to live a life you love every day, right where you are. See you in the next episode.